What is good, everybody? I hope y'all had an amazing week. We are hopping straight in. We're not we're not waiting. We're not beating around the bush. We are hopping straight in to day one of creation. Last episode, we broke down, uh, in a more general sense, the seven days of creation, how they're connected uh, literarily and uh, subject-wise on what God created and how he filled those certain creations. And it was a very eye-opening episode uh, for me as far as the study goes because it really showed me how intentional the biblical authors are with the crafting of each and every word of the Bible. It is absolute genius and art and it's beautiful and God is working and speaking through it in so many ways. And so today we're going to be taking a more uh, micro look at the days of Genesis and we're going to start with day one. And this is an important day because God is kickstarting his process of creation with this day. And so we're just going to hop straight into it. Day one in Genesis one verses three through five says, And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. So one of the first mistakes that we make when reading Genesis 1 is we assume that the Bible is speaking about things the same way that we would. We look at our world, through a lens of existence or non-existence. We look at things in a uh, material and scientific way. And you may think, oh, uh, well, I'm not a materialist and I don't think all that there is is science. And that's perfectly fine. But still, at at a basis of just how we understand reality, we understand um, reality in a more developed and nuanced and technical way than how ancient people did thousands and thousands of years ago. And this understanding of reality that we have has led many readers of Genesis 1 to the assumption that Genesis 1 is speaking about scientific fact or reality. And and one of the things that we can learn is that the Bible is not a science book. In fact, it's not even concerned with scientific inquiry or accuracy. The Bible is not... Uh, there to answer our scientific questions that so many of us um, bring to the scripture and hope that it answers. But what the Bible is concerned about is theological truth and revealing the truth about God. And particularly for Genesis 1, the Bible is concerned about purpose. What is the purpose of creation? What is our purpose within creation. So while we in our modern context think about reality through this mode of existence or non-existence, the ancient biblical authors thought about reality in a distinction between function and non-function. For instance, something did not exist if it did not have a function or purpose. And often things weren't named If it had no function, because in the eyes of the ancient people, it simply didn't exist if it had no purpose or function. Old Testament scholar John Walton says this in his book, Ancient Near Eastern Thought in the Old Testament. He says, quote, 
Very little in ancient Near Eastern cosmologies, including Genesis 1, relates to the manufacture of the material cosmos. Rather, they recount the organization and ordering of the elements of the cosmos as a functional whole. If we're going to understand ancient views about how the cosmos came into existence, which would be creation cosmology, it's essential that we understand ancient views about what constitutes existence, creation ontology. In the ancient world, something came into existence when it was separated out as a distinct entity and given a function and a name. This is a function-oriented ontology. This is in stark contrast to modern ontology, which is focused on the material existence or structure of something. For us, the existence of the world is perceived in physical, material terms, and this is a substance-oriented ontology. But for the ancient biblical authors, creation was about the establishment of the functioning cosmos, not about the origins of the material structure of the cosmos. End quote. So I know that there is a lot there. But the main thing I want to take out is, is what the point that he makes, that for these ancient authors, something came into existence when it was separated out as a distinct entity and given a function and a name. The, the thing that is separated has to have a purpose. It has to have a purpose in order for it, in their eyes, to be something, to deserve a name. Now, keeping that in mind, Looking back at the first three days of the creation account, what does God do on days one through three? Well, God names some things, doesn't he? What does he name? Well, God names the day. God gives a name to the night. God names the rakia. He also gives names to the land. And notice, everything in days one through three, what, what is happening to them? Well, they're being separated from one another. They're being separated out and given their own function and purpose. God separates the light from the darkness in day one. He separates the waters from the waters in days two. And he separates the land from the water in day three. And this is a foundational understanding that will help us understand what God is doing when we look at day one. Because many, many people, have read day one and concluded that what God is doing is God is bringing about material light into existence. We look at it as if God is bringing a light which consists of photons and tiny packets of energy that behave like a wave and particles and all these things. We look at that and go, oh, that's what God is doing on day one. He's bringing material stuff into existence. But this is completely missing what's happening because this is not what light means on day one i mean look look back at at what we read on day one we're told that what is being created is the light but what does god call the light when he separates it from darkness what does he call the light well he calls it day and what does god call the darkness he calls it night now, it's important that we let the Bible speak for itself because we're told that light is not, you know, uh, something being materially brought into existence. It, we're not told that, you know, all these photons and packets of energy are being brought together to create what we now call 
light. But we're told what light is. The Bible just straight up tells us what light means here. And it's the day. It's the daytime. So what God is doing on day one, he's not bringing about light into existence. But he's establishing a period of time. He's establishing day. And this is a period of time that is being separated from the darkness that he then calls night. So when light is being separated from the dark and is being called day, it's being called day because it now serves a function and it now has a purpose. And in response to that function and purpose, it's getting a name. God names it day and the darkness he names night. And this is a very important thing to distinguish because on day one, God is delegating periods of time by using light to keep the darkness that we first heard about in verse 2 at bay. That's another important thing we'll look at. But with this understanding in mind, day one would probably be better understood if we added some paraphrasing just to help our minds understand what the biblical authors already understood. It would probably go something more like this. Uh, And God said, let there be a period of light. And there was light. And God saw that the period of light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the period of light day. In the period of darkness, he called night. There is an evening and morning the first day. Now, the reason why this is uh, uh, fairly easy to, to apprehend this point of view about day one is the natural question that arises in many people's minds when they read day one and then they read day four and they realize something. They say, okay, wait. Well, how on earth is light Something that is, you know, created like we would understand it with photons, all that. How is that the case when the sun and the moon, the things that actually generate that light, aren't even created until day four? That's the question that naturally arises if we understand a light on day one as being um, a material thing that's being brought into existence instead of a period of time. That's the natural question is how is there light? How is there daytime and nighttime if the sun and the moon are not yet created until day four? That's a question that many people have asked when they read through this creation narrative. And there have been various theories that theologians have made to you know, try and account for this. And the one that seems, at least to me, the most biblically consistent and also consistent with our understanding of what light means now in day one that it's a period of time is just the fact that the light comes from God himself. And this further supports the idea that light in day one is not something that's materially being brought into existence, but it's God himself is generating this light. And this idea of God being light not just being light in a metaphorical sense, like, oh, God's really good and he's not like the darkness of this world. No, no, no. But in the the factual, literalistic sense that, that God himself is light and provides light, physical light that we can see, this idea is repeated throughout the Old Testament. 
I'll, I'll just share a few with you here. Psalm 36, verse 7 through 8. It says, How precious is your steadfast love, O God! The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house. You give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. So here the, the psalmist is reflecting on the blessings that God gives. And he points out that we only see light because of God's light. And this is a deep metaphysical claim that the source of light, the core foundation, is not the sun or photons or anything like that, but it's, it's God himself. His goodness and power, his light enables us to see all things. Here's another example, Isaiah chapter 60, 19 through 20. This says, The sun shall be no more your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light. But the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. Your sun shall no more go down, nor your moon withdraw itself. For the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your days of mourning shall be ended. So here, Isaiah is looking forward to a coming day when there will no longer be a need for the sun and moon. Because Yahweh, not in a metaphorical sense, but in the most literal sense, will be the source of all light. This is a literal description of what Isaiah sees taking place at a future time. I'm, I'm going to read it again. It says, uh, The sun will be no more your light by day. The brightness of the moon will not give you light, but the Lord will be your everlasting light. The sun will not go down anymore. The moon will not go away because the Lord will be your everlasting light. Here's another example. Revelation 22, verses 3 through 4. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Here again, another description of Yahweh being the source of light for all creation. John is very clear in Revelation. No longer will we need lamps. You're not going to need no flashlights. You're not going to need the sun because God's glory will be our source of light, quite literally. And knowing this about God gives us another example of the gospel's claim to the divinity of Jesus. You know, we talked about how God in the Old Testament, uh, in, in a past episode, was depicted as having full control over the chaos waters, and how Jesus showed that same power over the waters. And we pointed out that this was a subtle but non-subtle way for Jesus to prove that he was God. This was a way for Jesus to say, hey, I'm God, without saying, hey, I'm God. And when it comes to this whole light thing that we're looking at, this, the same thing applies. Because as we've just seen, God is said to not just be the creator of light, but to be the purest and most inextinguishable light. And Jesus is said to be the same as well. Look at John chapter 1, one of the most popular Bible verses, phrases, paragraphs of all time. In the beginning was the Word. 
And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God, whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. But he was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. So you see what's going on here. And and I think if we understand what John is saying in just a strict metaphorical sense about Jesus being this light in a, you know, oh, he's just a good guy and he's going to bring goodness to a dark world, we can really miss the claim that's being made here. Because John is not just talking about Jesus in the sense that he's good. But he's talking about Jesus and the fact that he he is light. He emanates light. Because why? Because he's God. This is a, a very, very clear equivocation to God and his light. And this may seem unimportant to most. You know, we, we may look at this and not notice this. But for the Jews at this time who know this portrait of Yahweh, who know these verses back and forth that talk about Yahweh's light, providing light for them with no need of a sun or moon anymore. This would have been an unmistakable claim that John is making here about Jesus. So back to Genesis 1, back to day 1. God is tasked with overcoming some obstacles to bring about creation. Uh, Darkness is one of them. And God chooses to handle darkness first. And he does so not by fully getting rid of it, but by placing it under his control, by using his own light to dictate periods of time, night and day. But one other thing that we can point out real quick. Do you notice how when we look at the ends of all these days, it doesn't say, and then there was day and night. There's the first day. That's not how it works. Notice that we're told that this day ends from evening to morning. It seems backward, doesn't it? We would think, oh, the day ends at night, not morning. Now, because this is how we understand things in our modern way of doing things and our modern way of dictating time and understanding how the days work, we we completely kind of miss just a a cultural context that you could only understand if you had the Jewish background on your mind. So notice a few things. Notice how the entire creation narrative starts with darkness, right? We're told that darkness was over the face of the deep. This is before any light became in the picture. So the narrative starts with darkness. So morning, right? When God brings about this period of day and now here comes light, morning would not be the sign of a new day, but a process that was within a current day. And with that in mind, that would mean that evening would actually make it be the end of that cycle. And the Jewish calendar is the same. The day begins with sunset, which is weird, right? It seems backwards. But for the Jewish calendar and for the Jewish people, the day begins at sunset. 
That's why Sabbath begins at sundown every Friday night. So it's completely backwards from how we view things. We view the day beginning, morning, sunrise. But for the ancient Jews, and even Jews today, they view the day beginning at sunset. And we see that reflected in, um, you know, the Sabbath and their, their uh, other holidays. And the tie-in to the Jewish calendar and how they celebrate festivals and observe sacred days is really interesting. And it will play an important role when we look at day four and the lights that we're told are for signs and seasons. So I hope this gave you some more insight on the first day, on the understanding of what light is, what is actually being brought about on day one. Is it material light particles, or is it God bringing about the order of time and separating out the light from the darkness so that it has a function, which he then gives it a name for? So I hope that gives you a better understanding of day one, and next week we will hop into the second day. Peace out.